So as you can, hopefully you have your Bibles, and I would invite you to turn to Mark 14. Um, I tried really hard this week. I tried really hard to, to try to work in Mother's Day and this passage, and, and I got nothing. So the only thing I will say is hap, happy Mother's Day. And now we're going to jump into Mark. So if you've been with us uh, at all throughout this past year, we've been diving in the book of Mark. We've been seeing time and time again the love of God displayed through his son, through his words, through his actions, through his deeds. Um, and here we'll see, spoiler alert, God is far more faithful to sinners than they could ever be to him. And we're going to see why that's incredibly good news. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark 14, starting uh, with verse 27. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jen talk about love and how love is transformational. But this morning, I want to ask the question, what happens, when, what happens when love isn't reciprocated? What happens when the, the one-to-one ratio comes, comes short? And I think uh, one cultural theologian, Bruno Mars, puts it a uh, very good way in one of his songs. Maybe you've heard it before. He, he says it this way, it gave you all I had and you tossed it in the trash. You tossed it in the trash. Yes, you did. To give me all your love is all I ever asked. Because what you don't understand is I'd catch a grenade for you. I'd throw my hand on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know, I'd do anything for you. I would go through all of this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. And if you were tempted to sing that, I get it. There's something about that song that resonates with us. It's no wonder that that single reached number one in 15 different countries. It was also Bruno Mars's third number one single on the Billboard Hot 100. And when he was asked, what is the point of the song? He responded with, I said, it's a heartbreaking, heartbreak song. And I think everyone can relate to that. You're so in love with this woman that you don't understand. What am I doing wrong? Why? What am I not giving to you? I'll go as far as putting a bullet in my brain for you. Why can't I get that kind of love in return? And you see, our culture demands that love is a one-to-one thing. And when you find that you don't have that, it's heartbreaking. And yet the beauty of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is this, where our culture demands a one-to-one ratio. The Son of God is far more concerned with demonstrating his love to sinners than he is sinners proving their love to him. So we're going to jump in and to, to kind of guide us this morning, I want to I ask three questions. How could they, looking at the disciples, how could we, looking at ourselves, And how could he, looking to Jesus? So let's jump in. How could they? And I love how Jesus starts this whole thing. The disciples stand on the brink of a very important decision. They're about to see their Lord and Savior go to the cross, and and their time is coming where they're going to have to make a, a, a very difficult decision. Is this worth dying for? And that's what I titled my, my sermon this morning, Worth Dying For? Question mark. Is this worth dying for? And they're on the brink of this huge decision. Stay with Jesus as they have for the past three years. See him get arrested and join him or run away. 
and on the brink of, of this game time decision, Jesus gives arguably the worst pep talk in the history of pep talks. Look at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus said, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Referencing Zechariah 13. Before anything happens, Jesus goes, you're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. And how do the disciples respond? Well, nothing new. Peter's the first one to open his mouth, right? And what does he say? Uh uh. Uh uh. Even if everybody else will fail, Jesus, uh, I got you. Almost to say, even, even if the rest of these chumps back out, Jesus, we both know I'm varsity at following you. I'm, this, is, this is my thing. And Jesus lovingly goes, uh, you don't know how bad you're going to blow it. You don't know how bad you're going to blow it. Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And as we'll, as we'll look in next week, what is the culminating, what is Peter's breaking point? It was a 13-year-old servant girl who said, hey, I thought I saw you with him. And Peter goes, no, no, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. And he kind of ups the ante. He goes, even if I have to die with you, I'm not, I won't forsake you. Jesus, even if this goes to the point of death, maybe even thinking about what Jesus said in John 15, where he said, no greater love is this than a man should lay down his life for his friends. You can hear kind of the well-intended but absolute arrogance of Peter going, uh-uh, even if everybody else, I don't know, how could they? But you know what? That doesn't matter, Jesus, because it's, it's you and me, and, and I'm going to actually demonstrate my love to you, Jesus, that I'm going to lay down my life with you. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does. And as well-intended as it could be, you can kind of hear the arrogance. You can kind of hear Peter losing sight of perhaps Proverbs 16, 18, that says, um, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And spoiler alert, we see it all play out, and he fails. And you see all of the disciples agree, hey, no, we're in this thing until the end. But when push comes to shove, they bail. How could they? How could they? You walked with them for three years. You did everything. You saw the miracles. You saw the feeding of the 5,000. You collected the, the leftovers and ate it. You saw him calm the storm. And you yourself said, clearly you're the Messiah, to the point where Jesus looks at Peter and goes, that wasn't flesh and blood that, that revealed that to you. How do you get that deep into a relationship with Jesus and you can't hold on? How could they? How could, how possibly could they? And it almost becomes infuriating. But you see throughout the whole story, how could they not? And you also see, but we also ask the question, how could they possibly? Because what happens next? They, they go to the Gethsemane and what does Jesus say? He says, I'm going to go over and pray. Wait here and watch. And he goes over and he prays and he, and he comes back and he finds them dead asleep. And his response is, one hour? Simon, couldn't you keep watch one hour? 
And he tells them, pray. Pray that you don't fall. Like he tells them what to do. And he goes away and he, he, he prays again. And he comes back and he says, again, he found them sleeping. And, and if, you're, if you're in your Bible, I want you to turn. Um, you can look at verse 30. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And you see, all right, this is very well intended. But they just can't. And, and once more, verse 39, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he, he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say. And this wasn't just, hey, I dozed off in my comfy chair on a Sunday morning after church. This was like, couldn't help it. Like switched up the day quill and the night quill and just can't help it. Right? This is, you see, this is, this is just human, this is their human limitation. And it's at this moment I kind of phrase, rephrase my question of how could they to, well, well, how could they? Jesus told you not to fall asleep. Yeah, but how could they? How, how could they not? And when Jesus comes back, I, I don't think it's a condemning sense. And we're going to get into that why. But he says, all right, enough. The hour's come. I'm going to go be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then you see kind of a, a third response to this failure. So what were the first two? There was, there was one of well-intended but honestly prideful arrogance that, that, based, that Peter bases himself off of and goes, okay, so this is the standard. If I can stand out from everybody else and just stay faithful, I will like secure my spot as the guy. And this is, this is what separates kind of the varsity disciples and, and the rest of the chumps. Then you, then you also see the second response of just kind of despair of, I don't even know what to say, Jesus. They, they want to follow you, but they just, they can't. And you come back and you find that they just, they're just asleep and, and they have no words. And there's also kind of a third response in here and it's, it's kind of hidden a little bit. But if you look in verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And last week we saw Judas goes, and he, he agrees to betray Jesus. And, and I look at this, and I go, well, what's his response in all of this? And I, I think it's one of, Jesus isn't worth dying for. Honestly, Jesus isn't even worth living for. Because something else commands Judas's heart, whether that's greed, whether that's a desire for power, whether that's the love of, of money. And, and you see, well, Judas, how could you? Well, his seems easy because it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. And even in one of the most beautiful displays of love in the Bible that somebody shows Jesus, the woman who lets down her hair, it says that, that, that Judas said, oh man, this could have been used for the poor. And the gospel writers are very helpful in going, he didn't really care about the poor. He helped himself to the money back. He was all concerned about the greed. And you could see in Judas's life that, that there was always something else that was worth dying for. And whatever you love the most, whatever you're worth dying for, that is what, that is what you will ultimately do. So if it's greed, everything that fails in your pursuit of money or power or pleasure, everything else will die to that aim. And you see that in Judas. And we go, how, how the heck could they? 
And it gets really easy to keep asking that question of how could the disciples do this? How could the disciples do that? But where do we find ourselves in the story? How do we find ourselves in the story as disciples to whom the Son of God also says, uh, you'll fail. How the Apostle Paul can say, all have fallen short of of the glory of God. How do we wrestle with the idea of our failures before a holy God? or the failures that are done to us? Do we have this mentality of, of maybe well-meaning, but arrogance of, well, I would, I would never, Jesus, I would never, I would never be that kind of husband. I would never be that kind of dad. I would never be that kind of mom. I would never be that kind of Christian that does that, but then when it like push comes to shove, they bail. I would never do that. And we like Peter kind of go, okay, so here's the line of like, here's being a chump and that's like doing this, like this person and that person. And here's, here's what it looks like to actually like follow Jesus and be a good disciple over here. And I'm going to be over here because I can, just, I can just not do that. Or we become so enraptured in podcasts and specials about, about the moral failures and the decline of, of pastors. And we go, how the heck could they? I could never do that. And we become sucked in because it partially becomes a, a way of justifying ourselves and go, well, I would, I would never do that. And we look at the failings of other people and go, how, how could they? How could, I would never. And we see that same sense of arrogance. Or maybe there's some of us in this room who know all too well what it means that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we find ourselves in this constant place of, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to stay faithful, but I just keep getting sucked back into this sin. I just keep getting sucked back into into pride or lust or power or greed. And I I really want to follow you, but I I keep failing. How many more times are you going to come back and find me asleep? Is this a three strikes and you're out type of thing? Because I'm out. I'm done. And we come face to face with our own failing. And it becomes this hopeless sense of despair of, Jesus, I don't know how I ever can follow you. Because I've seen all the ways that I've failed. And I've disqualified myself. And maybe some of us are, are like Judas. This whole Christianity thing, we're like, I don't, I get a lot more uh, pleasure. I get a lot more uh, life out of this thing over here. Out of living for myself, out of how big my house could be, out of how, how much, how many promotions I could get, out of how much security I can have. And that feels a lot better than what you're offering, Jesus, so I'm out. We're not even concerned about failing him because we're not even concerned about living for him. Where do you and I fall? And if you're like me, you're, you're probably a little uncomfortable right now. If you're like me, it's like, hey, I thought the whole point was you were supposed to come and hear you preach something and they get riled up and then we go out and then we live for Jesus and it's great and we, and we do awesome. Like, Jake, what do you mean I'm going to fail? Like, thanks. And you know what, if that was the end of the story, we'd all be in a world of trouble. If the end of the story was you're going to fall away and you're going to fail and you're not going to get it and you're going to screw up, like, well, then I guess we just, we just go sit somewhere in the dark and like, that's it. There's no hope there. 
Which is why time and time again, person after person, story after story in the Bible, you see the Bible is quite clear. All the faithful people of God continually screw up. Except one. And all throughout the biblical narrative is story after story of God basically telling people what to do and finding the people who seem like they should get it. And time and time again, they fail. Except for one. And I want to turn our attention towards the one. I want us together to turn our attention towards Jesus and ask the question, how could he? When all others fail, when all others fall short, when the glaring truth is that everyone fails, how could Jesus be the one exception? Let's look, at, let's look back through and see this through the lens of, of Jesus. First of all, what do we see? Go back to verse 27. You will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. First and foremost, he knows. Like, he knows. He knows that you're going to fall short. He knows that I'm going to fail. He knows that you're not going to be the perfect mom. He knows that you're not going to be the perfect dad. He knows that you're not going to be the best boss, the best employee, the best whatever. He, like, he knows. He knows you're not going to be a good disciple. He knows. The gospel is this glaring fact that the God of the universe knows your and my sin entirely. And this is why the gospel is called the great equalizer. Because nobody needs Jesus slightly less than anybody else. He knows it all. There is no impressing this God with any kind of performance because he knows. I one time heard a pastor preach and he said, and, and because God knows your sin, nobody in the kingdom of God will walk with a swagger. Nobody will walk like they actually belong. And yet at the same time, nobody will walk with a limp. Because there are no better or less off sinners. They're just sinners. And they're righteous. And the Bible is clear that all are sinners except for one. And he knows. But what else does he know? You gotta keep reading. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He knows your sin. He knows your failings. He knows your faults. But he also knows he's victorious. He also knows that he is victorious. And you see Jesus so bent on going to the cross because he knows. Because he knows that he will be victorious. And, and this is what I love. What separates Judas and the, and the disciples? The disciples see the risen Savior. Where the disciples deserted, they were pursued by the risen, victorious king. They were pursued they were restored and they were redeemed. How? Because the king was victorious over sin and death. And why would he do that? How could he pursue sinners? Well, because he knows your sin. He knows that he will be victorious and he also knows sorrow. He also knows sorrow. You look, at, you look at how he prays. 
In verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How can Jesus pursue sinners? How How can he stay faithful to sinners? Because he knows. He knows what it's like to have sorrow. So much so that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 15 says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. You see, how could this God be so compassionate? Because he knows. Because he he truly, truly knows. Paul said that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And the disciples feared the possibility of the wrath of man, how much more so Jesus who knew the wrath of God. Timothy Keller puts it this way in his book, Jesus the King. He says, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. The one who could calm the wind and the waves, the one who can look defiantly into the grave and call Lazarus out, he sees the wrath of God. He begins to experience merely a foretaste of it, and he staggers. He knows what it's like to be crushed because he also knows that it was the will of God to crush him, Isaiah 53. It was the will of God to crush him. And he knows the, he knows the weight of that, and he also, knows, he also knows human inability. I think Jesus was anything but surprised to come back and find his disciples sleeping. And because he knows all of this, I can say, it wasn't a, are you guys kidding me? All right, let's try this again. Are you serious? All right, one more time. Are you kidding? No, it was one of grace. It was one of, I see that your spirit is willing and I see that your flesh is weak and that's why it was never said of Jesus, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. In the garden you see his human will and his divine will come together and he is so committed to the cause of the gospel that he would seek and save sinners. Then he goes as far to pray to God and he goes, hey, not my will but yours be done. And are you starting to see it? How does, how does the Bible open up? It starts with the man of God in a garden and yet he refuses to truly live. He says to God, God, my will be done, not yours, and the result of that is death. His aimless pursuit of life, absent from the will of God, brings forth death to all. And here you see the better Adam standing in a garden going, God, not my will, but yours be done. Knowing that that means his certain death, but Paul says that through Adam all die, but through Christ all might be made alive. You start to see it. You start to see that all fall short except for one. And he knows that. 
He understands that and he's, he's willing. Jesus knew all of this. He knew that his disciples would leave. He said, so scripture could be fulfilled. And then they all, they all leave. So much so that you even, you even read about this, this one poor guy. Right? This, this one poor guy who really kind of gets the brunt of it in verse 41. Not only does he leave, but this guy leaves naked. Right? It says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Like this dude, like a lot of people, most scholars believe that this is actually the author, John Mark, putting himself in the story. And how does he paint himself? I chose to run naked through the streets then to stay with him. And in the same way, when the nakedness of our sin is exposed for all to see, what is the response of Jesus in that? He stays. He stays. When all else leave, when all else abandon the will of God, when all turn and run out of fear or arrogance or self-preservation, you see the Son of God stays. And what does he do? He meets arrogance with humility. He meets self-preservation with self-sacrifice. And he stays. And this is the gospel that Jesus knows our sin and he stays even when it's hard. Even when it costs him far more than it costs us. Even when our nakedness of our sin is exposed, he stays. Even when we deny him, even when we find ourselves uncomfortable of sharing our faith at work or at school, even when we go, Jesus, this isn't worth dying for, what is his response? It's that sinner's are worth dying for. And he demonstrates his love. And here's the thing, in our failures, in all the times that we see either this, our, our own prideful arrogance of I would never, or we come face to face with our own failures and we feel like we've blown it, the response is the same for both groups of people. Come to the cross. Come to the cross and see the perfect son of God who stayed in your stead, in my stead, so that way you and I would be brought into the presence of a holy God and not need to shrink back. Here we see the Son of God. He knows our sin. He knows our shame, and yet he knows that he is victorious. He's far more faithful to pursue the sinners who desert him than we are to love him. And what's so cool is by his spirit, then he begins a work in you and me to reorient us to look more like Jesus. Church history tells us that all of these deserters, except for Judas, but all of these true disciples, all of these failures were eventually martyred for their faith. A time came after years of the spirit of God reorienting them to look more and more like Jesus, a time came where the faithfulness of God won out against their human frailty, against their unfaithfulness. And they answered the call of Jesus, you truly are worth dying for. It goes back to they were so transformed by the love of Christ to be made to look like him. And that's our hope as well. That's our hope as well, is we find this true freedom in the cross to lay down the, the constant trying to compare and see where we're at if we're better than this person or better than that person and looking down on other people and going, well, I don't know how they could do that, but I didn't. So clearly, like, I'm moving up in ranks here. I gotta be a better disciple than this person because they're a terrible person or because they're terrible at work. Right? It saves us from constantly having to compare and it also saves us from this helpless despair of, Jesus, I, I see all the ways that I fail. 
I see all the ways that I answer the question of what's worth dying for with anything and everything except for you. And at the cross, we find that God's not, God's not ashamed of that. God's not surprised by that. He knows and he invites us again to come lay your burdens at the feet of the one who truly knows and the one who stayed and the one who promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you and we see the beauty of a faithful savior. We're invited into a freedom of you don't have to perform for God and that's incredibly good news because you can't. And the cross saves us from thinking too highly of ourselves And at the same time, it saves us from keeping our eyes fixed on ourselves to the point where we feel like God would want nothing to do with us. It brings us into a right relationship with God where we trust the arms of a Savior who's holding so much tighter to us than we ever could to him. That's why we come back to him. That's why we return him. That's why we we do things like a baby dedication. We're not not just dedicating people to to Chelton that we'll keep. You know, we're dedicating you to the arms of a loving God who holds far tighter to sinners than we ever could to him. And there's a beauty there. There's a beauty there. God's not standing in heaven going, man, I went to the cross for you and you can't even share your faith for me. No, there's a beauty and he knows And yet he stays and he redeems. That's why we can join the hymn writer who says, when I feel my faith will will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Or when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. Why? Because my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's go before, in confidence before the loving God who loves us far more than we could ever love him. And he knows that. He knows that. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you that your love for us far outweighs any kind of obedience, any kind of white-knuckled grit that we could possibly muster up to say that we would, we would, we would, we would live for you and we would die for you. So God, when we come face to face with failings, whether that's done against us or we see our own, God, remind us of the freedom of the gospel, that we're free to lay those things at your feet, the one who never failed or faltered, the one who knew no sin yet became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, thank you through the cross, we're invited into a right relationship with God that we don't have to shrink back. We're actually free to let our failures go because you are that much better. God, help us to trust that your spirit is doing a work in us to make us look more like Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we see time and time again you assert that sinners are worth dying for. So because you were willing to die for us, God, by your spirit, empower us to live for you and we'll find that the more that we live for you, the more we look like you. We start to love our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers a little bit better. So Jesus, make that true in our hearts and lives this week, we pray for your glory, for our good and the good of the world around us in desperate need of a generous Savior. We pray, amen.